0: The views and comments expressed on the space show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The space show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the space show are primarily for educational purposes. Start by a last three, three two, one. It's the space show with Dr. David Williamson. Project with seven continents, consistently bringing you quality news and interviews with the best and brightest minds in the new space economy. Here is the founder and host of the space show, the man who best articulates the vision of space commercial enterprise, Dr. David Livingston.
1: Good afternoon, listeners. Welcome to our Sunday Space Show program. And I'm your host, David Livingston. Thank you very much for tuning in today, uh, which will be a, an afternoon of talking ethics and space settlement, something we like to talk about on the space show quite often. Uh, this will be a 60-minute format program, so please watch your clock. And if you want to talk to our guest today, Dr. Nesbold, or if you would prefer to email her, make sure you do it while we have plenty of time to uh, talk with you as well as to answer your email questions. The toll free number is what we're using today, one 866 687 7223 And of course you can use email at DrSpace D R S P A C E at thespacehow.com. Uh, I'm going to skip most of the other front-end work given that we're on the 60-minute format. But once again I do want to stress that the space show is a listener-supported program. So if you like the programs that we do and talking to the guests, we ask you to support us, and we appreciate that support. And the easiest way to do that is PayPal. So you'll find a PayPal button on our website over in the upper right. That's actually a link. And uh, for those of you who like to use Zelle, uh, the email address is david. At one giant leap and that, of course, is our 501c3 nonprofit parent of the space show. And for those of you who prefer old school and would like to mail a check, it is made payable to One Giant Leap Foundation and it mails to Las Vegas. Our address is on the PayPal button and it's also on our website. But if you have questions, comments, or can't find the address, please email me at drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. Also, don't forget that we have sponsors and billboard advertisers is what we call them. So the sponsors do get the messages going across uh, our homepage. They rotate, and you can change your banner ad whenever you want. And uh, in addition, on the longer format shows, I read out a PR message designed by the sponsor. And on the shorter formats like today, I shout out to each sponsor because we wouldn't be doing the show without their great, generous, and long-standing help. Northrop Grumman, the Space Foundation, Astrox, AIAA, Celestis, the National Space Society, and Dr. Haim Benaroya with his books on lunar development, lunar HABs, and uh, his lunar engineering work. And remember, if you do buy those books through his banner ad, Amazon will donate a portion of your purchase price to The Space Show, and that is always, always helpful. If you'd like to know more about the sponsor and billboard advertisers, please email me at space at thespaceshow.com. Our guest today uh, is Dr. Erica Nesbold, and uh, she has a Ph.D. in physics from the University of Maryland, has performed computational astrophysics research at NASA Goddard, uh, the Carnegie Institute for Science, NASA Ames, and SETI. She now works as an astrophysics engineer for the educational astrophysics software Universe Sandbox. Uh, she is the co-founder of Just Space Alliance, a nonprofit advocating for more inclusive and ethical future in space, and she is the author of Off-Earth, Ethical Questions and Quandaries for Living in Outer Space and the co-editor of Reclaiming Space, Progressive and Multicultural Visions of Space Exploration. Erica is also speaking at the Living in Space track, which is managed by spatial friend and supporter Dr. Sherry Bell at ISDC. She is speaking at that track uh, I believe Sunday afternoon. For those of you that will be there on Sunday, you will certainly want to meet her and listen to her in person. Uh, Dr. Nesbold, welcome to the space show. How are you today?
2: I'm great. Thank you for having me. Uh,
1: pleasure. Um, so, how do you? How did you get your interest in space and um, space settlement and um, and the ethics involved in all of this? What What was your background? Uh, We know you you obviously like science, so how how did that get you to to space ethics, to space settlement, living in space? Uh, I'd be interested in that pathway.
2: Sure. Uh, I'm not only interested in science. Of course, I've always been a big fan of science fiction, which I'm sure is true of a lot of the guests on your show. Um, And so I was working as uh, an astronomer and an astrophysicist. Uh, I was doing a postdoc. And I got the fantastic opportunity to go out to Silicon Valley for a few weeks and work at NASA Ames and at SETI as part of a, a NASA program that uh, was researching problems of planetary defense, so how to defend the Earth from from asteroids, which was just a great experience. And as part of that, they introduced us to a lot of people in the new space industry. So this was around 2016. Uh, when, when there was a lot of talk about space mining in particular, and I had been considering maybe moving into industry, and I'd always been fascinated by the idea of space settlement in particular, and a lot of people in the private space industry like to talk about space settlement. But then in these conversations I would have with people in the private space industry, I was kind of disappointed. I, I felt like they couldn't really answer my questions about what I consider the the squishy human problems of space. Uh, so for them, I was asking about things like how they plan to uh, avoid too much environmental destruction in space or, or what they would do to handle labor rights disputes, things like that, and they just kept telling me, oh, well, we'll worry about that later, which didn't seem quite right to me, but I also recognized that as a, a person with a physics PhD myself, I don't have a lot of experience in education, in particular, in the social sciences. So I came back home, and I thought about it for a while, and I decided to start talking to the experts who would know the answers to some of these questions, or at least know how to get the answers. So I made a podcast called Making the World, where I interviewed people like colonial historians and sociologists and philosophers about what I saw as some of our big problems that we'll face as we try to settle space. So the ones I listed, labor rights, environmental protection, but also longer-term things like how will we handle criminal justice in space or various reproductive rights issues in space. And, uh, and that's what really got me started uh, on my path towards thinking about space ethics.
1: So you're, you're thinking about things like uh, criminal uh, justice, labor rights, that 's pretty far out because right now we can 't even barely get to space, and <laughs> it's certainly not for space settlement i 'm curious um, from your photo you look like you 're pretty young, so maybe in your lifetime i don 't know but i 'd be curious to know what kind of timeline you think some of these settlement issues would start to crop up
2: Well, I think that the longer term questions like like reef productive rights in space, for example. I actually don't think that that's going to happen in, in my lifetime. I think there's still so many technological and scientific questions about um, whether we can live out our lives in space, uh, whether we can create habitats that protect us from radiation, whether we can have children in space. I think those are all still open questions. And on top of that, there's all the economic questions of what's it going to take to actually get us living there permanently? What's the, what's the economic case for that? However, the fact that I don't think some of these problems will come up in my lifetime doesn't mean that they're not worth thinking about and talking about to me. Um, One of the things I realized as I was working on all this is that thinking about these problems, learning more about how we've dealt with similar problems here on Earth, um, is actually just a really good exercise for helping us learn more about the problems in our own society. And thinking about how we would solve them in space actually lets us think of sort of creative and radical new solutions because we're thinking of a, a, a sci-fi context like space settlement that can help us come up with solutions that could help us on Earth today. Oh. Uh, so that's, that's one answer. But the other answer is that some of the issues I touch on, like environmental protection, are happening today. Uh, even as close as low Earth orbit, there's a lot of people talking about the damage we're doing to that environment with the orbital debris. So there's, there's definitely some urgent reasons to be thinking about these topics.
1: Um, how would you describe a space settlement, or define hmm. it? I guess.
2: <laughs> I suppose my definition of a space settlement, like the point at which I would say, "Okay, we have created a, a, a permanent space space settlement," is when we have a community of humans living uh, away from Earth, and I I would include free-floating space stations in that, too, if that's the direction we intend to go, uh, like like an O'Neill cylinder.
1: Uh Um,
2: A a community of humans living in space and able to um, recycle enough material and energy and or extract it from their environment that they can uh, maintain the community without needing regular shipments from Earth of of material and energy, and also... um, able to maintain their population without continually bringing people in from Earth. So that requires everything from in-situ resource extraction and life support recycling and growing crops and also human
1: reproduction space,
2: which is, which is a tall order. So I think that's why I think it'll be a while.
1: Um, so um, I'm trying to, to picture an early group of people going to Mars, for example, um, I suspect the focus is really going to be on survival uh, much more than than anything else and uh, especially if they go on timelines that we generally hear being talked about, which I by the way do not believe at all is possible but um, that 's another story for another day <laughs> um, at what point in in, uh, in in your vision does a settlement go from survival mode? To sustainability? I think it's
2: not, uh, it's not a, it won't be a sharp transition, um, because I don't see any reason, if we're talking within our solar system, I don't see any reason there can't still be continued trade with Earth, because that's what we see here on the surface of the Earth, that, uh, even fairly isolated communities at different places still have regular trade, um, I also don't think that we're likely to have a bunch of people just decide to start a space settlement and pack up into a ship and, and, and go and, and be successful. I think it's more likely that we'll start with with outposts, whether they're uh, mining bases or maybe scientific research facilities, like we have in Antarctica, for example, that if this is the direction we go, that we'll eventually become more and more self-sustaining as they build more infrastructure and as technology develops, and then one day you'll be able to look around and say, "Oh, you know if Earth disappeared we'd be all right we'd survive um, and so at that point, I would call it a settlement and in that case, you can avoid a lot of the really rough struggles for survival because you're building up slowly with with continued resupply from
1: earth um, what are what are some of the Uh, priority ethical concerns uh, and to me I I really think we'll probably start out with something like an outpost on the moon uh, before we we even have a permanent base on the moon although I wish that were not so but uh, I would think maybe the ethical issues for uh, the moon maybe an O'Neillian cylinder or maybe Mars might be slightly different from one another Um, what, what do you see as some of the ethical issues that are being dismissed were not dealt with. And and by the way, I I have no idea what you think the ethical issues are, but I will tell you in 22 years of doing the space show, these questions and topics are continually dismissed, um, even through today. And um, on the talk that I'm going to do on part of the panel, which is sort of a retrospective of space show on living in space related topics, be it the moon or Mars or whatever, um, I haven't seen a big advance in facing some of these questions head on. Uh, I do see a lot of serious effort and money being spent on um, space debris and on Mm -hmm. situational awareness and traffic management. So there I see serious efforts to mitigate potential problems. Uh, Not that they have solutions yet, but I I think that that that's really being worked on. And again, I don't know what you're going to say for ethical issues or other issues, but generally people are more concerned with the rocket or the economics or something different than facing some of the uh, bigger, you know, more philosophical questions about living in space as well as going into space and being in space in the first place. So with with that little background on me, what do you consider or what would you prioritize as ethical concerns for starting to live off space, off earth, uh, in some kind of a community? Maybe not a government outpost, but some kind of government pre-settlement community. I mean private sector pre-settlement community.
2: Well, uh, just to, to step back even further and look at the big picture, I, I think the answer to the question of, of what are the first ethical issues we're going to run into really depends on why we're going to make a settlement, um, right? Because there's a lot of different groups and different kinds of organizations that have talked about this. And because those different groups have different motivations, they could end up with having different kinds of problems. So let me explain what I mean. There. The, um, the growth of the private space industry – there's a lot of a lot of people to start getting worried about ethical issues because historically private industry because they're motivated by things like profit um, can can end up doing things like uh cutting corners and and thus leading to environmental damage that could have been prevented with a little more expense or labor exploitation um And so those are the things people worry about if it's, for example, a private settlement.
3: In particular, you can
2: look at a lot of examples on Earth where um, they built these company towns that were owned by a corporation, um, like like the Putman Railroad Company, for example, and Everyone who worked for the company lived in this town, they paid rent to the town, they bought their food from company stores, and they ended up being very exploited because they were completely at the mercy of their company and their company was motivated to try to save as much money as possible. And it's very easy to imagine if ending up in a similar situation with a space company town if we're talking about a settlement that grows out of, say, a mining outpost, where everyone who lives there also works for the company. Um, They're completely isolated and completely dependent on their employers because their employers are the ones who are running the life support, for example. So those are concerns if you're talking about a private-based company settlement. On the other hand, you can imagine a different direction we could take, and, of course, science fiction explores this sort of thing a lot. Let's suppose that the first space settlement grows out of a military base. Now, currently, the Outer Space Treaty says that nations can't appropriate territory in space. But if we end up in a future where government-funded outposts or even militarized outposts are what grow into sustainable space settlements, you can worry about other things like uh, nationalism and, and proxy wars happening in space and all of the violence that we see when, comp- when countries start to fight over territory and resources. Um, and so that's that's the first question. Uh, another uh, example that's explored a lot in science fiction, although no one's really arguing for it right at the moment, is the idea that we might end up living in space because we're fleeing the Earth, right? This sort of right. lifeboat idea. And, uh, and I talk about that a little in the book, even though, that's not not exactly anyone's plans right now. If we end up having to live in space because the Earth is not survivable anymore, that leads to all sorts of other questions, ethical questions, like who gets to get in the lifeboat, um, and and how much of humanity are we preserving at that point? Uh,
1: <clears throat> so, what happens when you? Excuse my voice. When you uh, bring topics like this up. Uh, you, you do go to conferences. You, you said you were speaking at a conference just before ISDC. Are these uh, popular topics? Do people do you find that they're being addressed, or they're they're being dismissed, or people are just ignoring them?
2: It sort of depends on who I talk to. I have been very heartened to find that. Basically every sector of the space business right now, of these space fields, has people who are concerned about the ethical issues of their work and who want to learn more. They're they're like I was. They recognize that they weren't really trained to think about these things, but they are worried about them and so they want to learn more. And that includes people I've talked to at NASA, that includes people within private space companies, it includes a lot of space scientists who really over the past 10 years or so, have gotten more concerned about the ethics of their work in a way that astronomers haven't historically had to worry about. Um, and so that and that gives me hope. However, the, the structural barriers to thinking about these things are still in place, right? So the, the government doesn't isn't exactly structured around the idea of doing things ethically. They're focused on uh, voters and, and, and all of the politics involved and the international relations and, and having... Uh, uh being uh, American leadership in space and, and things like that. And the private companies have a legal obligation to their shareholders, above all, so they're mostly worried about that. And so everyone is still sort of constrained by the motivations of the, the organizations they're in. So we'll just have to see how much that wins out as these conversations amongst the public, like the ones we're having right now, As they get louder, we'll see if that means that people start thinking more seriously about these topics. Uh,
1: You have an email from Todd in San Diego, California, and he says, I'm surprised in your list of potential ethical issues, especially in terms of mining, that you haven't mentioned the issue, which is still a hot topic, around benefit sharing of resources. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on that from the ethical perspective? Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Thank you, Todd. Um, So this comes back a lot to the the Outer Space Treaty of of 1967, which is our, our big international treaty that tells us how to behave in space. And one of the things that it captures is this idea that most people still agree with that our activities in space should be for the benefit of all mankind. And the treaty even talks about how that should include benefiting all nations, even the ones that aren't able to do things in space yet. And that's a great ideal, but it's idealistic. And at the same time that everyone's still celebrating that ideal, we have these private space companies, including space mining companies, who have pushed for legislation that lets them, and this is included in things like the Artemis Accords, They argue that, okay, well, we all agree we can't go up and claim territory in space, but we want to be able to mine, and we want to be able to make a profit off of that mining. And so we want to be able to say the material, the valuable stuff that we extract from the moon or Mars or asteroids, we own that if we extracted it, and so we get to sell it, and we get to keep profit from that. And so far lately, the politics, at least in in the U.S., Seem to be agreeing with that statement because the America they, they want to stimulate their space economy and their space industry. But the problem is that that really violates the idea of benefits to all mankind, of benefits to, to everyone. If if space mining just ends up making rich people richer because the rich people and the rich companies are the ones that can afford to to go out there and start mining, then that's not really benefiting all mankind and. Poor nations, for example, who don't have space capability yet might very justifiably worry that by the time they get up there, all the good stuff will be gone, right, that uh, the gold rush will be over, Um, and we'll just end up perpetuating the inequalities we already have on Earth.
1: Tim, excuse me, Todd had an afterthought that I saved until you'd finished answering the first part, and his afterthought was... I think it's interesting to note that the oil and gas industry and coal industry and mining industries here on earth do not have benefit sharing with countries that do not have resources. They sell their product to them, but they don't share the profits of the oil companies unless they are stockholders in the oil companies. Any, any thoughts on his afterthought?
2: That's right, and that's true. I mean, that's been a big problem with colonization on Earth in particular is that the 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 local population, the native population of the places that have these great resources don't benefit from the fact that they have these resources if external companies or nations come in and take those resources. (laughs) Generally, most of that doesn't go back to the local indigenous population. So we have that example on Earth. And in space, it gets more complicated because there's no local population, but that doesn't mean that there's no ethical problem because it comes back to the idea of whether we think space belongs to everyone, in which case everyone should benefit from the, the resources that we get from space, or whether you think it belongs to no one, which kind of implies uh, whoever gets their first and just do what they want with it. Um, and there's still space lawyers arguing about that distinction today.
1: Um, is it your opinion that space is a commons?
2: Uh, commons is a legal term, and I, I try to <laughs> stay, stay out of the space law and just reference the space lawyers, because they're the ones who are going to have to argue this out in the courts eventually. I do think that, colloquially, space is a commons in the sense that we risk the tragedy of the commons, um, which is the idea that if no one feels uh, responsibility for the thing as a whole, then everyone wants to just get as much value as they can extract out of it, and you end up with things like environmental damage, uh, unless everyone gets together and agrees on certain rules for how to treat the commons and, and protect them. And I think that as as vast and infinite as space seems to us right now, I think we certainly risk... Uh, repeating that kind of behavior in space if we're not careful. So that's that's my answer to whether I think it's a common.
1: Listeners, you can give our guest a call at 866 687 7223 and you can also send in email to Dr. Space at the com. Um, I haven't heard yet, uh, I hope they're listening to the show. I, I would love for some of these folks to call in or to email in, um, but many. Believe that for a settlement, uh, or I guess a village, or wherever the, a group of people are going to live, they have to be able to uh, have children and and have uh, you know sort of regular lives that and and so therefore they don't consider something as a settlement um, that might be precluded from being a settlement with children because of, of, of microgravity issues. So do you make a distinction in settlements based on whether someday there could be pregnancy in children and they, they could sort of be more or less similar to what goes on on Earth? Is that a distinguishing factor for you or, or not?
2: Uh, in fact, this is a, a major ethical problem I think we face when we talk about space settlement. But personally, I don't think we can ever have a permanent human presence in space without solving this problem of, of how to replenish your population. Um, because the farther we get from Earth, the harder it will be to to replenish your population purely through immigration. So the question is, you know, we have this natural in, built-in mechanism for, for re- replacing our population. Is it going to work in space? And the fascinating thing to me from an ethics perspective is not only do we not know if it's possible yet to have healthy, to to have healthy conception and and growth and and birth of a child in space, we don't even know how to figure that out in an ethical way. Because in order to try it, we would end up having to experiment on a a fetus and a pregnant person in space. And if you talk to any bioethicist, they generally agree that, uh, it's not a good idea to experiment on fetuses And so we're kind of caught in this catch-22 um, of, of how would we even figure that out to begin with. Um, so that's that's sort of a, a tough barrier we're going to have to get past eventually if we intend to even figure out if it's biologically possible to reproduce in space.
1: Well, if these questions are not answered, by the time more or less... Um, normal folks, I'm, I'm not talking about specific astronauts, for example, mm-hmm. uh, want to go to Mars, uh, then um, how is it an ethical question to interfere so that people can't reproduce uh, to maybe make them go through some kind of surgical procedures or, or something else? Uh, how ethical is that to make make sure that uh, you don't have childbirth in an arena where you don't know anything about it, and you don't want to do experimentation on the job training.
2: Oh, I think that's a, that's a really intriguing question. I don't, I don't think you can make an argument that it's more ethical to force someone into, say, a temporary sterilization that that's somehow more ethical than letting <laughs> them accidentally experiment with uh, with human reproduction. So yeah, that that could end up being a tough decision. I'll, I'll also point out that even before we get to outposts on the moon or Mars, uh, if the people who want to grow the space tourism industry by putting orbital hotels into space uh, end up being successful, we very well very well might end up with, with unintentional experiments in that way. Um, and I, I don't think you'd ever be able to make the case that that people going into space should not be allowed to to even be possible uh, for for it to even possible for them to, to attempt reproduction in space. I think we're probably going to end up with a sort of inadvertent experimentation.
1: So um, we're going to have on-the-job training. Who <laughs> who is going to pay for the uh, for the mistakes and for the? I mean, that's a really interesting question to me because if it doesn't work out and you don't have normal fetal development or children except that they are born and they're living i mean you may have one hell of a mess on your hands so whose responsibility is that to to take care of that um, person i guess I'll call it a person but do you know where I'm going that this could I
2: I do I do i mean you're you're touching on a lot of really tough ethical questions we face here on earth today for one thing, I'll point out that we're going to have to figure out what to do about um, healthcare liability in space, even if there is no
1: reproduction. Right? Well, well, what we, what are you talking about for healthcare liability?
2: So, so you say who who would pay if we ended up um, having children born in space that have a, a lot of physical problems and and needs, right? that's right, the right, or men,
1: mental problems? Or yeah, there is Yeah,
2: yeah. Percent. And and my point is that through accident or illness, we could end up with adult humans in space that have. Um, a lot of, a lot of uh, disabilities and needs in that way.
1: So we'll have to figure out how to create a, a healthcare and caretaking infrastructure in space anyway. I, I bet my Medicare yeah. wouldn't pay for me to get sick in space. Um, well, the, yeah, so that's a good question. And then the other thing I'll say is that we have children being
2: born with various disabilities here on Earth, and we always have to decide as a society um, how much we want to treat those children as human. And of course, this has led to a lot of terrible things in the past uh ways that we we treat those children and so I think it's not exactly a new question in space it'll be a a question we've been having throughout all of human civilization is how what are our values as a culture
1: and what are our obligations to these children Uh, you have a caller who would like to talk to you good afternoon caller welcome to our program today who are you where are you please
3: this is Marshall Wenentro. Okay. And uh I'm enjoying the conversation, but uh one of the things that uh, some people talk about, and I've read a couple of articles on it, and that is uh the people going to space literally mutate over time to being spacemen and not earthmen. And then you get a real interesting ethical problem of uh, the people in space are producing products and benefiting from being genetically different uh, and then basically saying, uh, why are we uh, supposed to give X amount to these Earth people that never took the risk? So there's a risk-benefit situation there that needs to be resolved. How far off am I? Uh,
2: well, I, uh, I think you bring up an interesting point, and I think that your point still stands even if we put aside the, the question of how people in space will evolve differently from people on Earth, because certainly you can imagine on a much shorter timescale, you'll end up with some kind of cultural evolution, right, that the people in space living in a community in space will start to really see themselves as distinct and different from those those Earth humans down below who who never took the risk, as you said. And of course we've seen this on Earth as well. As as people migrate away from their home cultures, they develop their own new distinct cultures. And if there's an economic difference in there, uh, then then you can imagine a lot of sources of conflict there. Um, of course it could also happen the other way around. The people on Earth could start to decide Maybe we don't want to keep resupplying those people in space. It's too much work, uh, and they're different than us anyway. And you know, they don't even look like us anymore. And uh, and we've seen the same pattern repeat throughout history. That once people start to look a little different, it gets a little too easy for people to decide. Well, they're not really humans over there. They're not. They're not the same level of people as us. And that's led to a lot of horrific things in the past. And so I think that's something we have to pay attention to.
3: You know, I, uh, my specific example happens to be the fact that I went off to college, you know, computer geek, et cetera, et cetera, while my brother stayed in the family home construction business. And, yeah, we're about as different as you can get. And I see the cultural difference just between myself and my brother. So uh, you take, you know, four or five generations It's it's going to be a major problem. Well, it might be a problem, but it might
2: not be, too. It it sort of depends on how you, and and by you here, I mean you you, the society living in space and on Earth. It it depends on how we decide that we want to treat differences. Uh, If you have a culture that really values uh, diversity of perspectives and diversity of ideas and, and, and body shapes, for example then that sort of difference might be celebrated. We might one day be saying it's great that those people in space are so well adapted to it because they're sending us all the cool stuff they're space mining, and we need that stuff. Um, on the other hand, if we if we lean towards uh, the less good sides of our nature, then, then yeah, we could use it to dehumanize them and turn them into enemies. So I, it's, uh, I don't think any of this bad stuff that I talk about is inevitable. I think that uh, we just have to make deliberate choices.
1: Mm. That's all for me
3: today.
1: Thank you, Marshall. Appreciate your call. Thank uh, Listeners, you can give us a call today, and uh, the toll-free number is 866-687-7223. Uh, emails here from Bobby in Phoenix, and Bobby Bobby says, it, it looks to me like time is marching on and commercial space is marching on, and commercial space is probably significantly ahead of where ethical discussions are being held and resolved. So there's always going to be a gap, and there's always going to be catch-up. So how do you see commercial space's advancements and progress compared to what you would like to see in place to help regulate or maybe orderly control that same commercial space development and expansion but because space is moving faster than the ethical side and those discussions, you're always going to be behind the eight ball.
2: Yeah, I think uh, I think Bobby's got a great point, and, and especially when it comes to regulation. I've talked to a lot of people working on space policy and space law who are really concerned that the, the rapid pace of the space, private space industry right now is going so much faster than regulation can go just because of the nature of the way that we make regulation. And so this is a big concern right now when it comes to orbital debris uh, with all of these mega constellations of satellites going up uh, and regulation is struggling to, to keep pace with that. Everyone sort of pre- foresees that this could end in disaster because they're moving at different speeds. And you can imagine that for, for lots of other problems in space. But I don't think that means that we should just give up trying to talk about these issues. Um, for one thing, uh, there's more and more discussion, and I see this even from within the private space industry. There's more and more argument that that just means we need to make sure that we're including conversations about ethics and, and potentially bad outcomes just right from the start of planning, in the same way that when you're building a rocket system, you figure out the worst-case scenarios right from the start. Um, And a lot of people are working on that. And um, the other thing I'll say is that I think with all the planning in the world, we still wouldn't be able to prevent ourselves from, uh, from bad situations in space. So what I really hope is that not only do we try to learn from the mistakes of our past through studying history here on Earth, but I hope that as we keep making mistakes in the future in space, that we keep trying to learn from them. And that's something I'd
1: really like to see. Um, man, you know, when you when you look at how communities and and people are are eager, it seems to destroy each other. I, I don't know how you stop that from also going up into space and at some point manifesting itself. But these, that, that's
2: that's true. But I'll point out that uh, if you look at the history of humanity, it's not all destruction either. We're we're good at figuring out how to hurt each other, but we're also good at figuring out how to forgive each other and build systems that protect vulnerable people and and maintain the values that we hold dear. And so, uh, maybe this is just revealing how much of an optimist I am, but I I think that we humans humans can do all right if we if we put the effort in.
1: Well, we want the good part to go and That's right. the, the bad part to, to be somewhere else. You have another caller. Uh, I call her. Welcome to the program today. Who are you? Where are you, please?
4: Hey, David, this is Gravity Prescription John in Fremont, California.
1: Okay, well, if you're at ISDC at 5 p.m. on Sunday, you can hear and meet our guest in person.
4: Looking forward to it, and um, thanks for coming on the show. And I, You said earlier that um, we don't have a way to determine the Gravity Prescription at this time. And uh I'd I'd like to take issue with that. Uh there are a lot of people who are proposing low earth orbit partial gravity facilities um, that uh and and actually putting together protocols for doing mammalian um, reproductive studies, um, first starting out on of course rodents uh to uh determine if um, Mammals can reproduce in um, uh, lunar gravity or Mars gravity, and and once if, if, if let's say that that works out uh, for for mice and rodents, then uh, we could have a discussion about the um, ethical considerations for higher mammals like like apes or, or whatever. But if if we uh you know, find that uh it works, um then then uh we can uh hopefully maybe move forward from there. But I, I strongly suspect uh that having uh evolved in one G for millions of years that humans will not be able to reproduce in anything less than one G. And that will restrict us to um artificial gravity uh, settlements. So uh, I'd like to get your take on that.
2: Yeah, thanks, John. Um, and and you make a good point. And, and I should clarify, it's not that we haven't done any sort of reproductive research in space. Uh, even on the ISS, we've already done um, various kinds of experiments with, with things like, like fish, And I think frogs and things like that, uh, with very mixed results. It it hasn't been that clear either way, to be fair, uh, whether this is going to be hard or easy. And, uh, and, you know, more going, going further up the, the chain towards humans, of course, is the way you would do that sort of research. But at some point, we're going to have to, to figure this out, we're going to have to, uh, to have a human actually try it. And the other thing that's a big risk, besides, a known risk at least, besides the gravity issue, which I agree with you on, is, is the radiation issue. Um, humans are exposed to so much more radiation when they're in space, even if they're on the moon or Mars, um, and we, we're all pretty aware that radiation can be really damaging uh, to, to a growing fetus. So, uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll find out.
4: Well, um, so uh, radiation is solvable, engineering solutions for that, but gravity isn't. So um that's the one thing that will prevent us from having long-term settlements on on the moon or Mars if we determine that people can't have children there. So it's it's the biggest issue. Um, I wanted to uh talk about the profit motive. Um and uh it, it I, I I don't know. I, I I got the sense that um th- there were negative aspects to that and uh Actually, the profit motive has benefited many uh, and most people, not just the billionaires. Um, if you look at the airline industry, you know, it started out with billionaires initially, and now more and more people are capable of doing that. And then, you know, the oil industry, of course, powers our economy. All levels of our society are benefit from that. So I see no reason why we can't reap the benefits of unlimited energy in space, and uh, companies can make a profit doing it.
2: Sure, and that's that's certainly the big argument for the price, private space industry right now is that uh, uh, like that kind of capitalist system lets you bring down prices over time um, for for launch for for you know kilograms per dollars per kilogram of, of launch mass but um i i will also argue that there's plenty of examples throughout history and even today where you can see that people and or the environment have been harmed by uh, by profit-seeking companies particularly profit-seeking companies that don't really care about the damage that they're doing some some companies act more ethically than others but uh but in general, history has been pretty clear that with with completely unregulated capitalism, you can end up with a lot of harm being caused, especially to less powerful, more vulnerable people. And so that's just the sort of thing we need to keep an eye out, uh, keep an eye on as uh, as we move towards a more a more private approach to space.
4: I, I would argue that um, uh, our society has evolved over time to. Um, Uh, uh, weed out those problems. Um, certainly regulation has helped with the auto industry and in reducing, you know, emissions. Um, but, uh, companies don't profit by killing people. Uh, at least nowadays. Uh, maybe in the past, but, um, we've, we've evolved considerably since then. Um, the other, the other conundrum we have is if we come up with some regulation that maybe, you know, uh, put some level of controls on on companies from uh, I don't know making a profit or whatever, or sharing their 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 resources with um, all people. Um, will China and Russia comply with that?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. A lot of people also argue that regulation risks stifling. The, the private space industry, that's always an argument against against regulation. And so if you're depending on industry to, uh, to to lower costs, then there's an argument, of, oh, well, you need less regulation. And to be honest, that's just a fight we're going to keep having, uh, an argument that we're going to keep having. Um, and, and that includes arguments between nations and economic systems, like between the U.S. and China and Russia. This is what makes space ethics so fascinating, is we end up, going way beyond just space itself, and all of a sudden we're arguing, you know, the merits of capitalism, um, and, and I think that's, that's the case with so many of these topics, is that uh, space really brings up all these questions about the best ways to live together and uh, inter- interact with each other, whether that's on Earth or in space, so that's, that's my non-answer for you. Um, because well
4: no it 's the greatest it 's a great answer, <laughs> and uh, I like what you said earlier that you know we we need to start having these discussions and i I have seen in the new space industry i, I can 't think of any um, small satellite company that isn 't concerned about orbital debris, and they 're coming together with industry consortiums to develop standards for um, you know, uh, limiting the life of satellites to um, you know find ways for them to um, deal with them after they've expired, uh, and and um, you know on orbit um, servicing to extend their lifetimes and and also mitigate orbital debris. So these discussions are happening, and I I, I think I think the companies are, know that you know we need to share low Earth orbit. And they're not going to make a profit unless they deal with some of these issues.
2: Yep, yep. And uh, and I think part of the reason these companies are so interested in, and so so concerned about these issues is because they have learned from from history and seen other industries that ended up really uh, uh, causing a lot of damage to themselves through not paying attention to environmental issues. And that's one thing I like to keep pointing out uh, as as part of my optimism. Although it sounds like you're a bit more of an optimism than me, either even, uh, which is that. These, these are tough questions. We don't have the answers, but we at least have all of human history to learn from, and there's so many lessons that we can learn from uh, from past issues that are similar on
4: Earth. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for bringing this to our attention, and uh, I hope to meet you at ISPC. Thanks. Thank you.
1: Thank you, John. Um, listeners, you too can call 866 eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. You can send in an email. Dr. Space at com, and Linda is in Atlanta. And uh, Linda says there, well, <laughs> I'll let you have the phone call before I do Linda's questions. Hang on. Uh, good afternoon. Welcome to the program today. Who are you? Where are you, please?
0: Uh, this is Dr. Sherry Bell. I'm in Las Vegas.
1: Oh, hi, Sherry. How are you today?
0: Good. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing yeah,
0: it's great. It's good to hear. Yeah, it's good to hear from Erica. She's going to be on the track uh, at the ISDC, right? Correct. That's right. I've been getting your email, Sherry. Oh, good, good. I love hearing what you have to say. It's really interesting. Uh, I was thinking about this. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've been sick. kind of futuristic scenario Whereas, if we... You know, with the genetic modification of people, would it be, I, there's gonna, there's gonna have to happen someday, and it might pretty far in the future, but it would be more ethical if we do know how to genetically modify them to modify them to where they can live in certain gravities, one sixth or one third or whatever, and to have other attributes, you know, uh, Mitigation against radiation and so forth. So that if we come up with the idea that we're going to do this and we do this, there are going to be some ethical questions because they might not be able to come back to Earth very easily. So those are going to be some interesting things that happen in the future. Have you thought about that or what are some of your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. So on on the one hand, uh, pe- people love to ask me about genetic modification, and I very intentionally didn't include it in this book, not because I don't think it'll come up in in arguments. You know, I'm sure that people will make arguments that we should genetically modify potential space settlers so that they can better uh, live in their new environment. But because no, I, I think I'm in that, that is a topic. <laughs> I think that's a topic worthy of a whole other book about ethics, and there are plenty of people who right. work on. On the ethics of genetics, because of course these are going to be questions we ask here on Earth too. Um, people people will argue that we should genetically modify children to live better our lives on Earth too. And I think I think those are huge questions. I did cover right. per- another part of your question though, which is um, what happens if people can't come back? Because even without genetic modification, there seem it seems possible that people, even first generation people who live in space, will eventually change so much physiologically that it would be harmful for them to come back to Earth. And you can especially think of someone born in space, um, assuming it's possible, um, assuming our previous callers has figured out how to do that, um, that they would grow and develop and their bones would grow and their muscles would grow, et etc. Um, in, a, in a different gravity environment, lower gravity than Earth, mm-hmm. you can imagine that they might not be able to survive coming back to Earth. And, of course, we see this in science fiction like The Expanse. And I do talk about that a little bit in my book because I think it's kind of a tough question. You know, would that be ethically wrong of us to decide to take children up there? And and sort of is it like we're stealing their birthright, their ability to go back to their home planet? Uh, On the other hand, there's plenty of people here on Earth who make the tough choice to take their children into on dangerous journeys to completely new places in order to save them from a worse life at home. So so refugees constantly have to make these kinds of decisions. Um, and so at a certain point, these are just decisions that parents have to make. Um, but but it is a really fascinating question.
1: Sherry? Thank you,
0: Sarah. You're welcome.
1: Yeah. Anything more, Sherry?
0: No. just look forward to seeing you at the ISDC in a few weeks. Thank so. you,
1: Sherry, for your call. Um, mm mm-hmm. Listeners, that leaves the line open, and, and if you hurry, there is still time to uh, to call our guest today, 866-687-7223. Going back to Linda in Atlanta, Linda says um, there are more and more naysayers writing articles against going into space, developing space, all of the things that uh, everyone has been talking about today and the kind of things that Elon Musk and others do as well. Is it your opinion that we should not be going or we should slow way down until some of the ethical issues that you've talked about and maybe some of the cultural issues are somehow resolved? Or are you in support of going but trying to work the issues out as we go?
2: Yeah, this is a great question and I get asked a lot. So so there's a couple points that I want to make here. One is that personally... I think that we will go into space, and so my focus has been, or at least we'll try if it's if it's biologically and economically possible, I think we'll end up living there. And so my focus has been on, okay, there's so many different ways that that could go, so many different ways that, that could look like. Let's work towards making sure that our descendants who end up living in space will will thrive there and and that our our values will exist in those cultures. However, there are certainly people, uh, some of them my colleagues, who, who argue that we shouldn't be trying to, to colonize space um, and that we shouldn't be trying to live in space, certainly not right now, that we need to mature more as a species um, because otherwise we'll just keep making these same mistakes in, in space in the future and we'll do damage to space in the same way we have towards Earth so, even though I just said i don't agree with that argument, partly because I don't think we'll ever all agree that we're ready, um, I think it's important to not dismiss those people um, For one thing, it's always important to listen to opposing viewpoints, but I think it it really they make some good points about the the concerns they have about why humans trying to live in space could cause harm and uh, and we shouldn't just dismiss the idea that that harm might happen um, just because we don't agree with them about whether we should go to space. And so I like to always include conversations with those people in my work, try to identify what it is about our plans that concerns them and see if there's, there's better ways to go about it. And who knows, maybe they'll change my mind someday.
1: Um, have you ever had a chance to talk with people at SpaceX or some of the other larger private sector companies that are pushing forward in in whatever their own realm of work is to see what they think about some of these issues?
2: Uh, Certainly none of the decision
1: makers there.
2: And anyone working in a job that's not decision making wouldn't be able to speak for the company, so I'll say that much. Uh,
1: Have you ever spoken to Bob Zubern about any of this with Mars development?
2: I have not. I... um talk a lot about Zubrin's work in my book, uh, some of it in a critical way, so I'm looking forward to meeting him in person at ISDC.
1: Yeah, he is going to be there. Um, You have another uh, call. Uh, Hi, caller. Who are you? Where are you? Thank you very much for
5: calling. Yeah, hi. This is A.J. from Washington, D.C. How are you?
1: Just fine. Uh, How are you?
5: You
1: you have something in, in, in common with our guest. Do you know what that is, A.J.?
5: Yeah, we are both speaking at ISTC.
1: Well, you have something else Go in common. You both have your degrees from the University of Maryland.
5: Oh, that's right, yeah. Both you both have IC... physics degrees from the University of yeah. Maryland. Well, actually, mine is in aerospace engineering, but yeah. I have oh, okay. uh, some physics uh, courses there also. But, uh, you know, obviously, Erica is much, much younger than me. So, <laughs>
1: yeah, we <laughs> so <know that. laughs> yeah, we know
5: that. Yeah, we know that. So far, Erica, you. my question is. Uh, um, uh, you know, it's this is a very interesting, very interesting subject and um, you know, it's something that we need to discuss uh the, the way you're do, the way you're doing it. But my question is also that probably for next uh you know, twenty fifty, maybe even a hundred years it's gonna be a grey area. Meaning that a lot of people are not gonna actually go and settle anywhere, but uh, you know, maybe go there and live there for a while and then come back and uh, some of these other issues may occur at that time or may not, um, but how do you handle this gray area in your, uh, you know, thinking, discussion? Uh, you, know, you know what I mean. Is that right?
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I think I do. Um, yeah, the, this is part of why it's so interesting to live right now, right? So 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 many people say, oh, what a time to be alive. We're seeing the beginning of the space program, but it also means we're we're sort of stuck in this messy gray area where not only do we not know what's going to happen, but a lot of different people have very different ideas about the best way to go about this, and they're all going to be buttoned heads for the next 50 years or so, I agree. Um, And a lot of these issues that I talk about in the book uh, will certainly apply in the next 50 years, maybe not reproductive rights, but things like how do we avoid uh, worker exploitation space, what do we do about property rights, um, uh, all sorts of questions like that. Those are going to have to be Tested for the first time in space, we'll go from these sort of hypothetical conversations like we're having now to actual conflicts and, and court cases and such. Um, and so, uh, it's it's a complicated time to live, but I think that it's also fascinating because eventually we'll have. We'll have made it through all these conflicts, We'll have made our decisions, the court cases will be decided, the laws will be written, and uh, the cultures of the people who are who are trying to go work and live in space will have solidified a bit. And so that means that we're in a time of of plasticity and flexibility where I think smaller groups with strong opinions can have a bigger effect that will ripple throughout our future in space. um and so i I find that kind of fascinating.
5: Right, so I think that you know, is it? Do you agree that uh, I think Moon would be our proving grounds for the first? You know, I mean, I, I would, I would assume, and I would think that probably people would go and live there for two, two, three, two, three months at a time, or maybe a year at a time, or maybe even just even shorter than that, um, and then come back, and you know, and so they'll have a different set of uh, uh, different set of uh, experiences and criteria, and different set of uh, uh, rules to go by and then Mars, and then from that we will learn a lot more, and then for those permanent settlement type of thing that you are discussing today, that maybe those will be quite a bit uh, uh, changed, modified, based on yes. those experiences.
2: Yes, yes, and, and certainly the path you describe... Um is one that a lot of people are envisioning. Uh, I would say even that low-Earth orbit has been our proven ground, both in terms of humans right. living and working there and also the environmental issues. Um, but, yes, uh, low-Earth orbit to moon to Mars is, is something that people envision. But I, I'll also say I, I personally try to avoid too much prediction, both in terms of what order we'll be doing things and also what the time yeah. scale would look like, because there's so many unknowns, uh, both in terms of what technology will develop and also... Uh, what, whether there's going to be a business case right any of this, an economic case, right? And so that all depends on all sorts of things that are going to be happening here on Earth. Uh, and so I, uh, I try to avoid predictions in that direction because that's just asking to be proven wrong.
5: Right. And, and also, you know, different countries going to those places might have slightly different rules even exactly. in the beginning. And so then all of that will have to be – a conglomeration of all of that will have to take place. And yeah. So uh, it's going to be it's going to be interesting time. I agree. Thank you, David. Thank you. Th- thank
1: you, AJ. Appreciate uh, your call, uh, listeners. We're just about out of time. So if you do want to make a call, you really need to hurry. 866 Eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. John says, Erica, do you think that Mr. Musk will solve the ethical issues and establish a colony on Mars? <laughs>
2: Uh no, I don't think he'll solve the ethical issues. Uh he hasn't given much indication that he's interested in solving the ethical issues. Um, but also um will he end up building a colony on Mars? I, I don't know. That honestly that's part of my <laughs> avoiding making firm predictions. Uh I think in the in the short term, like within mine and, and Elon Musk's lifetimes, uh it's it's just tough to figure out whether there's going to be enough of an economic case for that, uh, especially in this time when none of our national governments are really arguing for, for building space settlements. Um, so if you can make money off of it, and if it's technologically possible, then perhaps. Um, but I, I also think that there's a certain amount of aspirational and, and marketing speak in, uh, in the private industry these days, so, so we'll see. Um, I also think that we're a little too obsessed at the moment with individuals in in the private space industry and their visions. And if you've worked in space at all, I'm sure you know that um, space is really a team sport. Um, you know, Elon Musk isn't building rockets himself, and neither is Jeff Bezos. And uh, and this is going to depend – our future in space is going to depend on, on all of us, um, not just individuals.
1: Um, I have a, an additional question. This is, this is probably the, the last one of the uh – uh, of the show today since we're on the 60 minute format uh, Daniel Daniel is in Louisville, Kentucky and he says um, are you at all familiar with the work by Morgan and Lee Irons on 1G gravity and settlement and replicating earth in a space environment and if you are familiar great, I'd like to know what you think of it if you're not familiar, they are going to be speaking at ISDC, although I do not know when. But their theory and their papers relate to the fact that to live successfully in space, you would have to look at the only environment where humans have lived successfully since the beginning of time, and that is Earth. So what about the Earth environment allows humans to so perfectly reproduce and live and sustain themselves. So it's not just 1G, but it's the soils, it's the food, it's the components and everything, it's the atmosphere. Uh, The list is almost endless. So from their perspective, for humans to live in space, they need to replicate Earth's atmosphere and biosphere because that's the only environment where we know humans can successfully sustain humans. Anything else would involve evolution, but not on an evolutionary scale like in the past, but on a very, very quick scale, a rapid scale, and who knows what that evolution might mean and who knows what it might do to humans, and maybe you wouldn't have humans anymore. If you're familiar with all of this work, do you have any thoughts about it?
2: Uh, well, I'm not familiar with the work, but I'm familiar with these these ideas. And, uh, and this is certainly something that is the focus of a lot of research and development right now, is it's recognized, well, for one thing, I'll point out that humans have lived in space for, for short-ish timescales, right? We know that humans can survive in low-Earth orbit for up to a year or so at least, and we know that they can survive to the moon and back. But they do certainly have to carry a lot of technology with them. To do that. And one thing we haven't been able to do yet, because it's so complicated, is to bring a whole little biosphere with us, um, that can, that can re- recycle materials and air and such and, and support itself and grow food. And, and that's the focus of a lot of, uh, research and development. Is it going to be possible? I don't know. Uh, I, I think one nice thing is that we learn a lot more about our own Earth as we do this kind of research. Um, but, but yeah, it's a great point. Humans evolved here on Earth, and uh, as much as many of us like to dream about what it would be like to have communities in space, no one can deny that this uh, this planet we're on now is far and away the, the best place to live uh, that we know of, certainly in the solar system and probably in the
1: universe. Take a little Earth in a bottle with you when you go, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just,
2: if only it was that simple.
1: Right? <laughs> um, John sent in one more question, and, and then I... We will sign off for the day. But he he did say Musk would have to get a launch license from the government in order to launch for his colonies in Mars. So I suspect the uh, implication is that he would be complying with planetary protection and at least some ethical rules.
2: Yes, and and one little uh, tidbit of of space law for your listeners before we go is that um, the Outer Space Treaty says that uh, the launching state, so the, the government that gives you a launch license, in this case it would be the U.S., um, you are obligated, they're obligated to do, um, au- to give authorization and continuing supervision of any private companies or individuals acting in space. So it's not like uh, a SpaceX trip to Mars would be, uh, have escaped the law and be able to do whatever they want. They would still be uh, required to follow U.S. law.
1: Where can we get your book?
2: You can get it at uh, all the major booksellers, including Amazon, and uh, it's available both as a hardcover and uh, as an e-book, at most major e-booksellers.
1: Give us the name of it again. It's Off Earth,
2: Ethical Questions and Quandaries for Living in Outer Space.
1: Uh, And it's available now, right? It's already out.
2: Yes. Yep, it came out last month.
1: Okay. Um, Anything we should have talked to you about or asked you about that we've omitted or forgotten?
2: Uh, I don't think so. I can talk about this stuff for hours, but uh, your listeners asked some great questions.
1: Thank you very much. I look forward to meeting you at uh, ISDC and appreciate your coming on the space show today. Thank you. Thank you. Listeners, that's it for today, and uh, we thank you for your emails and your calls. And um, we're about to say goodbye, so as always, keep looking up, like we like to say on the space show. And goodbye from Erica, David, and the space show.